Oh yeah, let's get it. Monday, January 18th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. I personally am going on leave this week to take care of some stuff. So naturally, I try to cram my normal workflow into three days. And then I'm going to compound that by releasing a bonus episode later on this week. But the next bonus episode is worth it. I know it's tough out there for many of you in terms of the coronavirus. It's affecting employment. And for many, it's affecting keeping your home. Now, I recently spoke to a couple of directors over at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And if you have a federally backed loan, VHA, FHA, USDA, etc., and are having difficulty paying your mortgage due to the coronavirus pandemic, deadlines are approaching to apply for CARES Act forbearance or foreclosure assistance. And that's what we broke down in the upcoming episode. So be on the lookout for that later on this week. No ratings or reviews this week, but I did get an email from Jack Carr's agent and said that his episode was incredible. So there's that. But what did you think? Let me know. Please consider smashing that subscribe button and leaving a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. In doing so, you'll be helping push this podcast up higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans the chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. As for news releases, we have three this week. First one says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently its Digital Divide Consult has helped more than 12,000 veterans obtain internet access or a video-capable device for their healthcare needs. As part of the program, VA providers refer veterans to a VA social worker who determines eligibility for various programs to assist with getting the internet service or technology needed for VA telehealth, ensuring older veterans, those living in rural areas, and veterans who are homeless or in temporary housing have the opportunity to participate. Additionally, VA is partnering with Microsoft's AirBand initiative to educate veterans on essential digital skills. VA intends to update the Digital Divide console as opportunities for future broadband and device discounts become available. For more information about the Digital Divide console for you or another veteran who may not be able to hear this podcast, talk to your local VA provider. All right, the second one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced a new initiative with Fitbit that would require eligible veterans, caregivers, and VA staff with access to Fitbit programs and services to help manage stress, improve sleep, and increase physical activity during the COVID-19 pandemic. The initiative will be focused on participants who currently use Fitbit devices. VA has contracted with Fitbit to initially provide 10,000 eligible veterans, caregivers, and VA staff a one-year free membership to Fitbit Premium. This includes access to guided programs, hundreds of workouts, mindfulness content, a wellness report, and a health metrics dashboard. Participants will also have access to Fitbit Health Coaching, one-on-one coaching, and guidance from a certified health coach or licensed health professional. Eligibility will be based on various factors such as whether an individual is a veteran, already a Fitbit user, and their location. 
Additionally, some veterans who currently receive VA healthcare may be eligible to receive a Fitbit Sense, which is Fitbit's most advanced health smartwatch. As VA and Fitbit assess the feedback from the program and the outreach efforts, they will consider new ways to help support the health and well-being of veterans. To learn more about the initiative and eligibility, visit healthsolutions.fitbit.com forward slash veterans. Okay, and the last one says for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs began administering COVID-19 vaccinations to Department of Homeland Security employees starting on January 6th through an interagency agreement to support DHS's COVID-19 vaccination program. The agreement was initiated in response to President Donald Trump's declaration of COVID-19 as a national emergency and falls under the Economy Act, which authorizes federal agencies to provide services or supplies to other federal agencies on a reimbursable basis. As part of the agreement, trained VA medical professionals at certain VA medical centers are vaccinating DHS employees using DHS's Center for Disease Control and Prevention Vaccine Allocations. So the allocations are already being allocated to DHS. VA will continue to provide COVID-19 vaccinations to veterans and healthcare personnel per its COVID-19 vaccination plan. Veterans can get the latest information and sign up to receive updates on VA's COVID-19 vaccine webpage, which is www.va.gov forward slash health hyphen care forward slash COVID hyphen 19 hyphen vaccine forward slash stay hyphen informed. A lot of hyphens. All right. Like I said last week, this month is the 30th anniversary where all five of our military branches joined a coalition to push out Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait. That was to be called Operation Desert Storm. This entire month, VA will profile these veterans and tell their stories in honor of the 30th anniversary. And some are already out there on blogs.va.gov. Our podcast contribution to this effort is today's interview. He is a Marine and a Desert Storm veteran. He is also the CEO and president of the Desert Storm and Desert Shield War Memorial that is scheduled to break ground later on this year at the National Mall here in D.C. So, without further ado, I bring to you Marine veteran Scott Stump. Enjoy. Now, Scott, you're not related to to my colleague Adam Stump, are you? I think he might be of age to be a Desert Storm veteran, albeit he's an he's an Air Force veteran. Uh, you know, we're not going to hold it against him. But are you guys related? No, not not to my knowledge. I, I'm I'm not related to very many people in in this country. My uh, great grandfather Stump, who came over here from Switzerland, he's Swiss, and most of the Stumps here are German. Ah. And- yeah, he was one of nine, only one of nine children that came over here, and the rest of them are still in Switzerland. So I've got a very small pool of people. But my, I always ask somebody, well, is he a nice guy? You like him? Okay, well, I'm related to him then. <laughs> if, 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 if he's a jerk and you don't like him, uh, yeah, I no relation. Ah, he's an all right guy. I could say he's not. I mean, he's an airman, but, you know. No, like um, we can look past that. Exactly. Perfect. Um, now, your bio says that you spent four and a half years in the Marine Corps. Uh, first question we always ask here on Born the Battle, when did you know that the military was going to be the next step in your life? Well, I grew up in an environment where um, 
lot of familiarization with um, you know with the military. My dad served in uh, in Korea um, mm. as a as a, a sailor. I had a couple of uncles who were World War II veterans, and uh, it was just kind of the, you know the thing to do. And I was really intrigued. I had a friend of mine whose dad was. Uh, in at the veil, very tail end of uh, World War II as a Marine, and he had a, um, uh, a Japanese rifle that he had confiscated and, and brought back as a, uh, as a souvenir or a war mm. trophy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I was always intrigued with that. And it was, you know, essentially always felt like I wanted to do it. And then um, uh, after I had completed a little bit of college, I came to the, the decision that it was now or never. And decided to, you know, to make the plunge. And it was just one of those things I just, you know, so many had done it before me. It was just one of those things I felt like uh, I should do as well. So you just walked into the recruiter and like, hey, I'm a sure thing. Let's do it. Uh, Pretty much. Yeah. And I was in boot camp uh, literally within uh, five weeks after I went into the recruiter. So I wasn't uh, a a long, drawn out, delayed entry program. When When I went in there, I meant business. No kidding. Absolutely. Um, okay. Your bio said that you spent six months in support of Operation Desert Storm. Uh, what does that mean? Were you in direct support? Did you, were you involved in direct operations uh, or did you stay state, stateside or uh, what was your role in, in Operation Desert Storm? Sure. I was um, actually um, deployed with um, the 3rd Battalion, 24th Marines Reserve Unit. Okay. And, uh, it was an infantry uh, unit. So we, um, our, our uh, role um, varied and it changed and it kind of evolved, but we were in the eastern sector of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Ras Al Ghar, um, you know, came into Al Jubail, and we did everything from uh, securing flight lines. I uh, did a little work at Al Shakisa in in Bahrain, uh, you know, securing the flight line, also uh, guarding some ammunition dumps. Uh, our battalion even, uh, you know, handled some uh, POWs and so forth. I, I guess you could say it was in a direct support role, uh, but yes, I was uh, boots on the ground. And this time of the year is always uh, uh, brings back a lot of memories because we actually landed in country uh, on New Year's Eve of 1990. Very good. Um, now, did you spend your whole Marine Corps career as a reservist, or were you were you active? I, I did. Other than the, the training, I was uh, I was a reservist. Gotcha. Very good. Well, that's good. I mean, but you were activated during the during Desert Storm. Sure was. Now, what is one thing about Desert Storm that maybe the average veteran doesn't know? Well, I, I think you know. Here we are. We're almost uh, three decades removed. Yeah. And and I think that a lot of uh, veterans. Um, don't realize that uh, or they measure the significance and importance of something solely on duration. And, uh, you know, I could point to a great example that, you know, tell somebody that who had a massive heart attack that something that was a short duration didn't have a lasting impact. So, I mean, I think that that's really the wrong criteria. But I think the average veteran, uh, U.S. veteran right now in uniform, does not understand that operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm essentially uh, reshaped and reconfigured the relationship between the American public and those who serve in uniform. And essentially, uh, it is something that lives on to this day, that, that very familiar and often repeated phrase, thank you for your service, 
was directly born out of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And in 19... Interesting. Yeah, in 1989, people just didn't go around saying thank you for your service. You know, this was... uh, Desert Storm was not that far removed from Vietnam. There was still a certain stigma attached to the military. And at that point in time, during... Sometime during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, the average American citizen realized... Oh, my gosh, we made such a mistake in the way these Vietnam folks uh, were treated. They were just, you know, they were being a lot of them were even being drafted. It wasn't by choice. Yeah. We can never make those mistakes again. And we have to show uh, our support for the military. And that is a legacy that continues to this day. And, and you know, I always like to point yeah. out, too, that in 1990, you didn't have people giving up first class uh, airline seats Uh, to somebody in uniform. So it's a legacy that, thank goodness, our young men and women probably don't even realize uh, why it's that way. They probably think it was always that way, but I can assure you it was not. If you talk to some Vietnam veterans, you'll learn really quick that it wasn't always that way. That's correct. Uh, I I always talk about the Vietnam veterans because I've interviewed many of them here on the podcast and and always say, you know, I I appreciate them because that was a cross that they unfortunately had to bear. You know, they were they were treated in such a disparagingly way by the American public compared to what you and I had have received. And I always thank them because I, you know, without that cross that they bore, maybe we didn't have that. So I, it's interesting, it's interesting to hear that all that started right around desert shield, desert storm. Well, it, it did. And, you know, you, you and I, I won't, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to take you off track here, but no, no, you're good. Take a look at, at desert storm. And there were a number of, of people that who were Vietnam veterans that actually deployed in the field. Yeah. Uh, our senior leadership, uh, essentially all were Vietnam veterans. And I always give them the credit for this, for this rapid and resounding victory. They were not going to allow this to become uh, another Vietnam. They were not going to let us go through what they went through 15 and 20 years you know, previous. And thank goodness we had leadership in Washington that uh, shared that opinion. But I really give that as all of the credit for this um, often mistakenly referred to as 100 hour war, which of course we know it wasn't. But uh, you know, I guess if you're going to be accused of something, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> for, uh, I mean, for you, how, how long? How, I mean, yeah, it is referred to a 100 hour war. How long was it actually? Well, you know, you had 43 days of aerial bombardment, sorties going around the clock. Mm. And and I, again, I was in a Marine Corps. I was in the infantry. But I can tell you that and this is this is my opinion. I think history probably bears it out and will continue to bear it out uh, that if it were not for the effectiveness uh, of that aerial uh, bombardment that, uh, you know, General Chuck Horner uh, of the United States Air Force executed, uh, there's no way that it would have been a 100-hour ground war. And that's that's what everybody always kind of, you know, refers to is that 100 hours of, you know, ground combat. But, you know, it was – that was able to happen because of the effectiveness of the overwhelmingly successful air campaign, those 43 days. And, and those folks, uh, you know, absolutely allowed people like me to uh, still be alive and talk to you right now. Sure. Well, I, I, I completely, that makes complete logical sense. You know, if you, if you look at it that way, absolutely. Um, I mean, you talked about Vietnam veterans that were senior leaders. It was actually a great lead in because uh, the next question I got for you is, well, while you were in, Give me either a best friend 
who you served with or your greatest mentor? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great one. I, I would say that um, I, I had a number of friends there and, and, you know, you, you really, um, I'm not going to say you learn something new about people that you have to share a foxhole with or a fighting hole, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it certainly does confirm who they are. Uh, you know, when you, <laughs> when, when you strip away all of, you know, all of, you know, down to the basics of, of survival and being able to rely on that person. Uh, but, but I would say my platoon commander was, uh, was, was absolutely, uh, a, a, an indirect mentor. I didn't have a lot to do with him. Sure. Uh, but I did observe, uh, his style of leadership. And, uh, it, it's really striking when you see, you know, a variance of opinions with, with some of these leaders where they feel like, you know, maybe they're, you know, it's beneath them to fill sandbags or to get dirty or to put themselves in harm's way. Yeah. Uh, and, and this platoon commander really showed me that, um, you know, standing up for his men uh, and basically not asking me or anybody else to do something that he wasn't uh, willing to do himself. It made a tremendous impact on me and has totally, you know, shaped, uh, you know, my mindset and the way that I operate too. And, and I, I always knew before that, but this reconfirmed that, uh, hey, I'm not too good to do anything and uh, I'll get in and get dirty if it's necessary. Very good. Uh, who is your platoon commander? This guy named Bill Dowd is uh, First Lieutenant Bill Dowd is, is is what his name was. And he was from Bloomington, Illinois. Gotcha. Now, were, were there multiple instances where he, he fought for you guys or was there one in particular that that struck out that that you that you remember to this day? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would point to any, uh, you know, specific instance. Uh, and I don't think that would really do justice to Bill. But I, I think for me, what is what impacted me was was the sustained reliability and consistency of a leader. I think, you know, sometimes a person could, uh, you know, have a good moment here and still not be a good leader. Sure. But to have that consistency across the board, uh, there are some times where um, our platoon was kind of the, you know, the. I, I would say the less um, favorite of of the commanding officer, and uh, there were a lot of times where Bill, you know, took up for us and stood up for us and took some heat for us, and you know that really taught me a lot. That you know you put yourself out there uh, and you protect your people, uh, especially when they're being persecuted or being accused of things that uh, aren't necessarily right or wrong. You know, he taught me that you know it's it's very important to make a stand for what's right even at the risk of losing everything, including your rank or whatever. And he, he never did, but, uh, you know, he was willing to lay it on the line for his men, you know, and, and yeah. I'll tell you, I saw that over and over and over again, and it really did make a huge impact with me. Very good. Very good. Yeah. You know, you know, Scott, I don't talk to many desert storm veterans who did just, you know, four years or one pump or, or one enlistment. Uh, what year did you get out? Well, I got out uh, shortly after Desert Storm. I think I was done uh, in the fall of 1992. I think is when my oh, wow. my, my time was 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 up. Mm -hmm. So really, really quick after. Now you were you were a reservist, but uh, what was transition like in the early to mid early 90s? I mean, not even mid 90s. You were still in the early 90s. I don't I don't talk to many veterans that got out around that time frame. Uh, you mean transition, you mean personally, or just, just kind of the environment at that point in time? 
Uh, personally and both, you know, I, I, you know, what was the, whether, you know, we talk about how many VSOs there are in our help veterans or nonprofits that help veterans in, in a, in a myriad of ways. Was that prevalent in 1992? Um, you know, what, what, what helped you take the uniform off and, and transition to the next phase of life? <laughs> well, I, I think part of that was, uh, kind of starting my transition before I took the uniform off and I was kind of, um, sure. You know, I, I guess you could say kind of an unforgettable sight, at least within within our uh, company. I, I actually um, was called active duty uh, uh, prior to completing my final um, course for my bachelor's degree. So, oh, wow. When I was in country uh, on my little fanny pack, I had my book, I had paper, I had pencils and pens and I would do homework, um, you know, in, in the fighting hole, uh, you know, during downtime. So I was preparing for my transition at that point. And ju- just to set the stage for the technology at the, at the time, uh, I had an envelope that Uncle Sam provided me that I would, uh, you know, put my homework or my, my lesson or, or project or whatever it was, uh, put that in. It would take the, the professor two weeks to get it. And then it would take me two weeks to to get a reply to see what kind of grade I got. So I was I was kind of transitioning uh, while I was. That's a that's a different type of distance learning than what they have now. Well, it really was, and and I'll tell you, it, it, it was very interesting because I can't remember what the issue was, but I kind of left. Uh, in a hurry. And I got one of those letters, Hey, you know, you got five days to report, have enough gear for a year or more. And for some reason I had to call this, this, this Dean of the school uh, of the university. And I was on a field phone in Saudi Arabia. And I was, I was so uh, taken back by this guy. I was so worried about my class and all this guy wanted to ask me was, well, what are you seeing? What's going on there? And he's like <laughs> wanting a battlefield report. And, and I'm like, now, wait a minute. We're talking about me and my, my, you know, collegiate, you know, future. Career. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all he's worried about is, Hey, what's going on? Over? What do you see? What's happening? And, wow. and I just, I'll never forget that, that talking on that field phone uh, back to the States. It was, it was surreal. Oh, very interesting. That's, that's super interesting. Um, now, how long were you activated? We were activated on November 30th. And uh, so we started out uh, a few days at the uh, at the drill center. Then we went ahead and, and got off to uh, uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And yeah. um, we spent about uh, close to a month there, maybe not quite a month. Uh, and we are conducting desert training uh, at Camp Lejeune in December. So you have to have a, a vivid imagination at that point. Not really. Uh, I've been at Camp Lejeune. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's I, I like to say I, I spent a lifetime there one night. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah. Not not my favorite place. But uh, and then we came back. We got back. I believe it was a 14th of April is when uh, when things were wrapped up. And I, I just like to say, too, that uh, none of us. Absolutely none of us ever envision uh, to set back on, you know, to, to set our you know, feet back on the ground here in the U.S. Uh, that quickly. Nobody could have sure. ever imagined that. And I can remember being a young guy, you know, early 20s, filling out that paperwork for the will. And I really thought to myself, wow, the way they're predicting things in the media here, boy, you know, my parents might get 35,000 bucks before this thing is over with. <laughs> It's amazing that was the life insurance policy then. It sure was. 
by, by the time I left, it was 400,000, 400,000. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Don't let my parents, don't let my parents know that. Okay. There, there you go. There you go. Um, you know, a lot of current infantry veterans talk about the difficulty of transitioning now. Uh, you know, many believe that society only sees them as a, as a future police officer or corrections officer or security guards or, or janitors, what have you. You were an infantry Marine that got out in the mid, in the early to mid nineties. How did you personally reject that notion? Well, you know, it's funny you bring up the whole police officer because, and, and that type of, of, a, of a career path, because, um, you know, really, how do you translate uh, the skills that you, you know, that you hone and that you work on in the infantry? How do, how do you, you know, other than being a hit man or like you said, a prison guard or something along those <laughs> lines. Man, I like that one. I've never heard that. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Solid. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you translate that into uh, a, a quote marketable skill? And ironically, my undergraduate degree was actually in criminology. Um, oh, you know, wow. Yeah. So I was kind of going down that path and then I, you know, I had a couple of twists and turns and I really realized that, you know, I, I don't know if that's really my, my cup of tea. Um, I, I think what helped me with the transition, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that these infantry men here since me that have been transitioning, you know, I'm sure that they come to the realization too, that, you know, it isn't necessarily the, the hard skills, you know, that, you know, the yeah. being able to, you know, to, you know, to hit the bullseye at, at a 500, you know, yard or 300 yard or whatever, you know, it, it's really the soft skills. It's the, the, the reliability. I think it's the integrity piece that, that we're drilled into. I think it's a teamwork aspect. I think so many of those skills are transferable in today's corporate America, whether somebody's an entrepreneur, whether they're working uh, in, in a Fortune 500 company. Those skills are something that I would argue are transferable into any discipline. And as far as the technical knowledge goes, that's something that as long as somebody has a, a you know, a, a decent amount of, of intellect and can pick something up quickly, you yeah. can easily transition into that. So I'd, I would argue that that, that transition uh, is, you know, those skills are very transferable and to not just focus on those hard skills of, of uh, you know, shooting the M203 grenade launcher or that expert badge. <laughs> what, what, exactly. I mean, yeah. it transcends that. And, you know, there are so many things that I've witnessed and maybe I'm just getting to be an old codger, but I've noticed that there is a, a lot less of, of those skills being displayed now just in a general population that, that I really believe that, uh, you know, somebody that is separating from, uh, you know, from the service, uh, whichever branch is going to possess. That's their leg up. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, what, what did you do after your transition? Uh, what do you do now? Yeah, I spent about uh, 15 or 16 years in the financial services advisory uh, business and then uh, <clears throat> transitioned into a small, uh, small business. And um, this whole memorial project is something that, um, that I kind of came to the conclusion needed to be done uh, back in about uh, November of 2010. So I'm just now crossed over into my 11th year. Wow. And it got to the point where I was doing, you know, the small business and this, uh, you know, the memorial uh, at the same time. And then yeah. you got to a, a divergent where, you know, it just, this takes too much time and it's too complicated not to give it full-time attention. 
Sure. So uh, within the last five years, I've transitioned into just doing this uh, 100% of my time. I can see where we're putting a national memorial on the, you know, on the NDC and on the national mall could get a little complicated from time to time. Absolutely. How did you become the CEO and president of the national desert storm War memorial? Was it, was it an idea that, that you just started or was it like something that was already, was the association already in action? No, I, I'd, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to say that somebody, you know, identified, um, you know, this, you know, this wonderful skill set and this, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and plucked me out. But no, I, I just happen to be the guy who who came up with the bright idea that that's it. Interesting. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that this wasn't a conversation until 10 years ago. I was too. And, and, and don't, don't ask me why this idea came to me. I didn't put a lot of thought into it, but this came, this came about uh, right prior to the 20th anniversary of, of operations, desert shield and desert storm. And it dawned on me that my own kids who were about 10 and 11 years old at the time uh, really didn't know anything about this. Nobody really learned about it in history. Um, you know, to make matters uh, even, even I don't want to say worse, but a little bit more uh, disappointing uh, was that, you know, you, you could attend some of these um, VSO functions and uh, maybe it's Veterans Day, maybe it's Memorial Day, and people would list the major actions, wars, whatever you want to call them in the United States history, and yeah. they would skip over um, Desert Storm altogether. And I just felt like that wasn't really right. I felt like deploying 700,000 troops in a 34-country coalition, uh, you know, was just too big of a deal and sure. that, you know, to be forgotten and that, that people always focus on it. Well, this is a little speed bump in history. Uh, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, the timing, the time was very, very brief in relation to many and most of the other uh, wars, military actions. However, the accomplishments and what it means in the big picture was too, too, too important. Uh, to, to just let go and, and, and be, be really remembered or relegated as a footnote in history. And that's really what it was on the course of being. Yeah. You had, like you said, over 700,000 deployed, but you also can't forget 400 American service members that we lost. Still a lot, that's, that's still a lot of people. Well, right. And you look, you look in the time frame, uh, it is. And, and I would say even if it was 10, uh, I, I totally Absolutely. agree with you. And, and, that, and that was one of the things I felt, too, is I just kind of felt like it was wrong to just kind of skip over that um, and, and forget these people uh, who did make the ultimate sacrifice, as well as those 700,000 who were willing to make that sacrifice. And, you know, we can't go back in time, but I'll tell you that uh, some of the predictions made prior and during deployment were pretty grim. I mean, we expect to lose 30, 50, I've heard 100,000. I mean, there, there were some predictions for some very high casualties. So th yeah. this was not, nobody knew that this was going to be the quote, slam dunk or the, you know, just such a successful operation upon deploying. People were ready to make that sacrifice. And I think that's what's different about this memorial is the fact that it not only celebrates and remembers uh, these precious, you know, 400 who, who made that ultimate sacrifice, but it also recognizes the collective willingness of this generation of these 700,000 yeah. uh, to lay it all on the line if they were required to do so. They were ready to do it. Absolutely. 
How's it? How's the memorial coming? How's it going? Uh, you said it started 10 years ago. Where are we at today? We are, you know, continue to make progress. And of course, this year has been, uh, been kind of an anomaly. Nobody could have seen this coming. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we continue to make progress. Um, a lot of people don't realize that in order to do a commemorative work uh, in Washington, D.C., it's a 24 step process. Uh, and, you know, when we first started this, um, our legislative sponsor, Congressman uh, Phil Rowe, uh, from Tennessee's first district, he, he, he said to me on the phone one day, he said, well, Scott, you know why there's 24 steps? I said, no, I really don't. Why? He said, it's so people don't build memorials. I said, well, that makes sense to me. Uh, <laughs> wow. It, it, it is. It, it's, it's very complicated and it's something that uh, demands, um, you know, absolute uh, allegiance to the mission to see it through uh, a lot of difficulties. You're navigating these commissions in Washington D.C. Uh, after you know you get the the um, you know the legislation uh, approved, and that was something that we were fortunate enough to get back in December of 2014. We had a um, uh, had the legislation pass authorizing the memorial to be constructed in D.C. Well, that's a big step. It, it was. It was a real big step, and that came on that came on the heels of the House of Representatives uh, vote on May twenty eighth. It was a three hundred and seventy to, to zero vote uh, in favor of doing this. So that that's kind of what you, you, you hardly ever hear that anymore. No, it, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> definitely didn't have a whole lot of um, uh, of debate, which we are happy for. Uh, then we moved into the site selection process, and and that's something that uh, you know it produced a lot of scars in, in us because it was just so difficult. It's supposed to take eighteen months. Uh, ended up taking us right at three years, and mm. uh, that was a very very difficult process. But at the end of the day. We, I felt, as long as our team felt that be, having the visibility was the most important aspect, that we could build the most dynamic and breathtaking memorial in the world. But if it was, you know, somewhere in northern Virginia uh, and people couldn't get to it very easily, it kind of defeated the whole purpose. So locations, everything. It, well, it is, you know, location, location, location. And I'm, I'm very happy to report that uh, at the location that we uh, identified through a, a very complicated and uh, thorough process that now uh, millions of people every year are going to learn this story. It won't be forgotten. Uh, the people of Kuwait who were liberated are not going to be forgotten. The, the coalition's not going to be forgotten. And everybody who is involved is going to be forever remembered at this site. And we're very, very, uh, it's very gratifying to know that millions of people are going to learn that story yeah. if they don't already know it uh, or be remembered if they do know it. Gotcha. Where's the memorial going to be located? Where, where, where did you guys finally get, what did you guys finally get? Well, location is at 23rd and Constitution. It's basically off to the uh, to the north side of the Lincoln Memorial. Okay. Uh, we're essentially two slots over from the Vietnam Memorial. We're down the hill from the State Department, which, of course, was critical in Desert Storm. Yeah. So we're very, very happy. It's right in that flow of, of, of tourism. And, you know, a lot of the kids, that, you know, from school, they park buses close by. Uh, right across from the uh, fittingly 
to the U.S. Institute of Peace. So uh, we're just tickled to death and we think it's just very, very fitting. And uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to bringing this thing home. And, and hopefully where we are now is we're, we're, we're uh, finishing up the fundraising piece as well as uh, concurrently working on getting the, uh, the final design approval. We're getting into all of the, you know, the design aspects. Okay. Uh, our goal is to, our, our goal is to break ground sometime this year uh, in commemoration of the 30th anniversary of, of Operation Desert Shield. Very good. Well, that's that's prime real estate, like you said. That's you're right there on the on the National Mall there. Um, now you're looking to break ground in 2021. Has 2020 thrown off any part of your timeline, and how did you adapt to that? <laughs> it has. I mean, there, there's no doubt this has really uh, impacted a lot. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, there have been a number of of the coalition countries who are interested in hosting events uh, abroad in, in their countries and so forth to, you know, to raise money and to, and to do certain things. Uh, it has made things more, more uh, difficult and, uh, you, you know, definitely more complicated. However, we continue to adapt by, you know, just doing what a lot of other people are doing, and that's finding a way to get it done. Whether it's a WebEx call, uh, you know, whether it's it's uh, you know you know more phone calls versus the in-person you know meetings, uh, yeah. you know, you name it. Uh, but but we are not dissuaded one one way or the other because, as I mentioned, you know, this has been one adaptation after the other. We have had more, and and we don't have near enough time to get into this, nor I don't want to you know, put you to sleep no, you're fine. going through this, but we have had just one struggle, uh, one mountain to climb after the other. And it, it's, you know, it's just kind of gone that way. And I'm just reminded that anytime you take on something of this scale, uh, and especially being in Washington, D.C., you know, there are a lot of hoops to jump through, uh, you know, for good reason. I mean, th- this this is, like you said, prime real estate. Uh, it's, it's essentially the nation's backyard. And, you know, people in these commissions have a very um, weighty responsibility to make sure that what is done is done in a fitting manner, manner yeah. uh, that's going to bring honor to, you know, this new commemorative work as well as the existing. It's got to fit in in the neighborhood, so to speak. So, you know, we just continue to plug along. We've also been doing, uh, we have a wonderful uh, uh, lady who is our director of communications. Her name is Jill Etter. She is a, an Air Force oh, yeah. veteran in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, yeah. She did. She was in uniform, but didn't deploy. But she does all of the, you know, a myriad of fundraisers, Facebook fundraisers. We, you know, we've done things on site fundraisers. So reaching out through those avenues has 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 you know proved very very successful too. Uh, but you know, she's just just done a, a wonderful job, and we're just thankful that we've been able to get creative. Yeah, she was. She's been great uh, with us as well, and uh, and getting this interview together. So no, hats off to Jill there. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that, you know, you don't want to put me to sleep. I think it's super interesting because I've never talked to anybody that's had to try to put something in the National Mall as far as a memorial. So I think there's a lot of people that's going to be interesting. Like, how does that work? Right. Um, you talked about funding. How much, you know, it's, it's funny that you said that it got approved through Congress, but it's not funded through Congress. That That's correct. We, we felt... Uh, in my vision, and and um, you know, it was shared by our team. 
my vision from the very beginning was that even if we we were not in the financial situation that we are in this country with the, you know the deficit and the debt uh, at the levels that, that, sure. that they are, that just being good stewards, I couldn't in, in good conscience take taxpayer funding for this. I just we, we just didn't think it made sense. I know I, I know there are other memorials that have taken a different tact and and that's you know that's that's definitely uh, out there if somebody wants to do that. I just don't think that was a message that we wanted to uh, you know to, to put out there and something that personally we we wouldn't have felt good about. So the legislation specifically states that no public monies would be would be taken for this. So then the responsibility for the funding, um, you know, falls into our purview and it's something that we have to handle. Mm. Now I did read that the country of Kuwait itself pledged 10 million, right? They did. They pledged 10 million and that was announced, uh, third quarter of last year in, in 2019. So yes, we're very, very thankful for that. And, um, you know, continue to look for opportunities to work with them. And, and yeah. uh, you know, of course, this is huge because, you know, here you have this story that's going to be unfolded in the location that it is. And uh, I, I've always said that, you know, I think that if, if it were not for this memorial in 20 years, nobody would know anything about Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And I don't think anybody would even, you know, a lot of people would not be familiar with the country of Kuwait. So I think this is great in that it is able to, you know, highlight this this unique and special relationship that our two countries share. Absolutely. I mean, that was the huge part of the story was liberating their country. I mean, that's absolutely, of course. Um, so t- 10 million there, how much does this whole project cost? The budget that we determine, and we, we have had a, a number of very detailed estimates uh, working with uh, people that work in the district yeah. on this, looking at the line items. This isn't just a number we plucked out of the air. Uh, you know, the, the, the budget was 40 million. Okay. Uh, we, we, we still need to uh, raise 20 million. Uh, and that's been the focus in this year uh, specifically is, is uh, approaching and getting with those, um, you know, uh, high donors, you know, that would be able to to get this knocked out. Uh, it's not an overly, um, you know, uh, egregious amount or a large amount. I think it's very, very modest. It's not something that you look at and go, God, how are we going to do that? R- right, exactly. And, you know, I, I always like to, to, you know, to compare it. I'm not going to get in the comparison game, but, you know, some of the, some other recently, um, you know, constructed memorials, it, it comes in very modest uh, in, in, uh, in comparison to that. It's just something that we felt uh, what was very, very important. And one of the things that we um, are guiding vision uh, on our design team, Randy Schumacher, and his his saying from essentially the being, beginning, probably nine years ago, profound simplicity. That's kind of been our guiding light with this, that, you know, we were delivering a very profound and important message, uh, yeah. but we want to do it in a simplistic, clean way. It doesn't need to be over the top. This isn't World War II. We understand that. We get that. But it's still a very, very important part of our country's history uh, you know, back then as well as, as today, it's still very, very relevant. But that was kind of our guiding principle is we wanted to do this in a tasteful, uh, meaningful way. We don't want to be over the top or muddle the message. It's got to be clean. It's got to be succinct. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that's what the design is going to uh, ultimately reflect here. 
Well, I think as a, as a, as a Marine, you know, having a Marine run it, you, definitely you're going to get the best bang for your buck. Cause uh, you know, we didn't get the best gear growing up and <laughs> as compared to all the services. Oh, you had that too, huh? I, I thought the gear would have been better by now. Yeah. It's still hand-me-downs from the army, you know, no, it's, 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 it's better gear, but it's still, uh, it's still, when you look at the other services, you definitely still get a little bit of green of envy, you know, still got to make do with what you get. So, well, and that's, that's really the way we've handled this. You know, accountability is something we take very, very seriously. We, uh, you know, we, uh, respect every dollar that comes in, uh, whether it's yeah. from a, a VFW post, whether it's, you know, from a private citizen, you know, what have you. We're, we're always very careful and prudent with how we uh, expend our resources. And, you know, that's reflected even going back to when we first set up the 501c3. Uh, you're not required by law to even file 990s unless you raise 10000 uh, in in a given year. And uh, the first few years, we probably had $86.33 in the bank and we were still filing 990s for transparency purposes. Sure. We, we, we just feel that it, that it that it's a right thing to do. And one other thing is that, that we're very different from a lot of organizations. You probably notice we are an association and not a foundation. And that means when the mission is complete, we are complete and we are done. Wow. I did not know the difference. I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, now, the, you're talking about the board of this association. Uh, I did notice all veterans. All of them. That's correct. We, 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 we run a pretty lean ship here. We've got, uh, there's just eight of us uh, and, and everyone is a veteran. And uh, that's not to take away in any way, shape or form. We've got a, sure. a network of, of volunteers and so forth across the country. But uh, the yeah. core governing body is, is made up of eight geographically dispersed veterans. And, um, you know, you can't do it without people that are dedicated to the cause. Uh, you've got to have those advocates and you also have to have people that have a patience level because as you said uh, earlier, it is very complicated uh, and, it, and it takes a long time. It takes a long time to get something like this done. Sure. I, I yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you know, 700,000 veterans deployed, uh, if, you, if someone's listening to this now that did deploy and they're like, hey, this is pretty cool. Uh, is there any way they can get involved in the project? Sure. We're, we're always happy to engage with with our with our veterans. We've had people that uh, have reached out and said, hey, I'd like to do a fundraiser at my VFW post. Can I do that? Uh, you know, what have you in any way, shape or form? You know, we've got a very active and robust uh, social media platform, Facebook, the Instagram, sure. uh, tw Twitter, you know, you name it. Uh, they can they can contact us through the website as well. And, you know, that that quite frankly has been probably one of our biggest challenges is being able to effectively uh, reach out and communicate um, to our fellow veterans. You know, 30 years is a long time and people, uh, oh, yeah. you know, people have a lot going and it's and it's there's just been no easy way to make sure that people know this. And one of the things that it disappoints me is when I hear somebody saying, oh, wow, I didn't know anything about this. And it's like, when did you start this? Well almost 11 years ago. And it's, you know, it, it's a little frustrating, but it, it's a world we live in. It's, it's, you know, communication is tough. Yeah. Yeah. And marketing and, and getting it to the right people. Now, Scott, I know, I know, you, you know, this is a, a 51C3. I know you started this. Uh, is there a, another veteran nonprofit or an individual whom you've worked with, or you've had experience with whom you'd like to mention? 
Well, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the veterans of foreign wars. Uh, they, they have been extremely supportive. And in fact, they, um, they were our first um, very large donor. They, uh, they donated $500,000 and they, they spread that out over a five-year time period, $100,000 each year. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and why that was so important, it wasn't just the money, but it was the timing of the money. Uh, a lot of people you know, look at this as a risky endeavor. I never have. I always knew that this, that this would happen because you know, we're dedicated to it. We're going to see it through. And I realize that, that, you know, that that's not always the case with individuals and organizations that they've worked with. But to have the confidence uh, in me and especially our organization and our mission, to have that confidence to be able to, you know, to, to um, you know, deploy those type of, of, of um, financial assets they're invaluable yeah. to the project and, and quite frankly, have allowed us to get where we are. If it weren't for that, uh, I'm not sure where we would have come up with those funds. Uh, Terrence Hayes, he's a, he was a cubicle mate of mine here at the v, here at VA. Uh, he, he's gone over to VFW now and he's now their podcast host, also an Army veteran. Have you, uh, have you given him a shout out? Have you, have you contacted him recently? Not, not familiar. No, sir. He's, right. he's, one, he's one of the 10,000 people that I have not made contact with. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, you know, he's their communications director. Well, let me know. Let's talk offline after this and, uh, and I'll get you his contact info. I, I'd be, I'd be glad to. Thank you. Absolutely. Scott, what is one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, I would say the overriding uh, lesson that I learned is that I want to be one of those people that can be counted on. And when I tell you something, I'm going to do it. And I remember when we deployed and we might've just gotten in country, but we had one of those, you know, those chats with the, uh, the CEO or the, the, um, it might've been the, the platoon leader. And I remember being told, you know, you're not fighting for your country. You're not fighting for the flag. You're fighting for the person to your right and to your left. And yeah. that's something that always stuck with me is that, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say. And that is something that um, has always stuck with me. If I tell you that I'm going to come and help you move at uh, 5 a.m. this Saturday, I'm going to be there. Or I'll be in the hospital or in the undertaker's office, you know, one of the two. So I, I would say that's that's the, the biggest thing is the integrity piece. And, and, you know, I, part of that was I learned at home. My mom always taught me, you know, don't open up your mouth unless you mean business. And it was reinforced and taken a, a step further in the military. Absolutely. Uh, Scott, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything that I may have missed or didn't ask that you think is important to share? You know, I, you know, you ask about how the, you know, the veteran, uh, you know, can, can, can get involved or anybody. And I would just, I would just like to even open that up. If there's any citizen, maybe there's a, a family members, maybe there's some kind of, um, uh, you know, corporate entity that has a, um, has a desire to, um, you know, to be involved. We would, uh, we would love to engage uh, with you. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention is that, um, there's been a new rule that's enacted uh, with the National Park Service that for any donor, this could be an individual, it could be a corporate donor, it could be a, a country, but any donor who donates uh, one million or more will be publicly recognized on site at this memorial. 
Uh, oh, wow. and, at, and at this point, they're allowing that recognition to go on for 10 years. Uh, but boy, what, what, what advertising for somebody, you know, when you have millions of people seeing that, and that's really motivated some, you know, some of the potential donors is being able to, you know, to be there. And, and we feel good about that too, because we're big on recognition. We like to make sure that we, you know, give credit where credit is due, because this is a team effort. Uh, a lot of people lifting, um, or at, let, let's say the right people lifting at the, at the, at the, at the same time uh, yeah. to get this over the finish line. That foot track traffic in the national mall, that's that, I mean, there's hardly any few, there's few places in the world where you would get more foot traffic from a, a marketing perspective. Well, and I, I don't know if, 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 if your average listener or, or you might not be aware of this, but I, and the only reason I know is I've looked at the statistics sure. is that several years ago, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, and we're less than, 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 uh, you know, 400 meters from that, about 300 meters or less from the, the Lincoln yeah. had, had close to 9 million visitors in one year. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, and we feel that being that it's in that circulation, that walking circulation uh, path, that even by default, there'll be millions of people that maybe they don't go there with the intent. Hey, let's go to the Desert Storm Memorial. Hey, let's go see that. What is that over there? Just by having that location, it's going to draw people in and those people are going to learn the story. And our people who served are not going to be forgotten, and our, especially our people who died. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank Scott for telling the Desert Storm slash Desert Shield story. You're on board the battle. For more information on Scott, you can find it at ndswm.org forward slash the hyphen board. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week was provided by VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran with a short write-up on all of our social media platforms and on blogs.va.gov. You can submit your own Veteran of the Day by emailing a photo or two and a short write-up to newmedia at va.gov. Walter Boomer, Boomer was born in 1938 in Rich Square, North Carolina. Boomer graduated from the Randolph-Macon Academy in Front Royal, Virginia, and later earned a bachelor's degree from Duke University. He commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps in 1961. Boomer served with the 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, and then 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, both of the 2nd Marine Division, at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. By December of 61, he was promoted to 1st Lieutenant and later to Captain in 1965. Boomer saw action in Vietnam from 1966 to 1967 while working as the commanding officer for Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. In August of 71, Boomer went back to Vietnam as an advisor to one of the South Vietnamese Marine Infantry Battalions. For years to come, he worked in various capacities throughout the states while working his way up the ranks. In August of 1990, Boomer deployed to Saudi Arabia, 
where he served as the commanding general of U.S. Marine Central Command and one Marine Expeditionary Force during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Boomer then returned to Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California, where he became the commanding general for one MEF and for Camp Pendleton. In September of 1992, Boomer became the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. He retired from the Marine Corps in 1994. Throughout his service, Boomer received numerous medals and awards, including the Distinguished Service Medal, a Silver Star with Gold Star in lieu of Second Award, a Legion of Merit, and two Bronze Star Medals with Combat V. Marine Corps Veteran General Walter E. Boomer, thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. If you like this podcast episode, please consider subscribing. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. Follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark McElhenney, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun, fire, bullets fly, take my brain. Simplify till we're done with a campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raiding down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner Bullets fly, day and night rain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one You know, when we When we came home uh, nobody knew what to expect. Um, you know, we were a little bit apprehensive. Are these Vietnam guys going to be mad at us because they wanted to make a big fuss over this? Oh, and yeah. they, they, they wanted to, to throw a parade for us in this little itty bitty town uh, that we were coming back to. And, you know, we we just basically rejected that. And we kept saying, we don't want to do it. We don't, don't want to do it. And the CO basically lined us up and said, you're doing this parade. It isn't for you. It's for the people. So we didn't have a choice. Mm. And, you know, this, this CEO was kind of a, kind of a cantankerous guy. He and I didn't see, uh, you know, eye to eye a lot. Um, he didn't appreciate my sense of humor and I didn't appreciate his. 
And um, so we're, we're marching down this, this main street and four or five people packed. I mean, it's just people everywhere. And we got in front of a reviewing stand and the CEO gets up there and I can't tell you a word that he said, but he got to the very end and we're all lined up in, in front of him. And he said, and I dedicate this to the Vietnam veterans that never got this. And we all had lumps in our throat and we realized that, you know, this, this whole thing, liberating Kuwait was huge. All of the things that happened was, you know, they were huge events, but this really made it all circle back. And that's when we knew that this meant so much more than just a one dimensional military, um, you know, conflict that this had deeper meaning. Uh, even us, you know, in our early twenties, we realized just how important what we did was to these other folks.